Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters, and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we're going to talk about Movie Musicals Part 2. This week, we revisit movie musicals focusing on films released in 1980 and after. This time, we have seen more than we haven't, and we have included some of our all-time favorites. So without further ado, let's get to the movies. First, we have The Blues Brothers, released in 1980. I remember the first time I saw this movie and how much I absolutely loved it. It introduced me to blues music, and I have been hooked ever since. The story follows Jake and Elwood Blues, played by John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, who were both constantly clad in suits, a la Men in Black, with fedoras and Ray-Ban sunglasses. The opening scene is Elwood picking Jake up from prison. Jake had taken the fall for an unpaid bill for their former band. The current Bluesmobile is a decommissioned police cruiser, and Jake is quick to point out, Well, thank you, pal. The day I get out of prison, my own brother picks me up in a police car. Elwood responds with all of the overpowered stats of the engine, in addition to it being cheap. And spoiler alert, It is basically a magic car capable of stupendous feats, especially when avoiding police pursuits. Their first order of business is visiting the nun in charge at the orphanage they grew up in, who they fondly refer to as the Penguin. She informs them that the orphanage is $5,000 behind on their property taxes and will be shut down if the taxes are not paid in 11 days. She implores them to find a solution. As they are exiting her office, they run into Curtis, played by none other than Cab Calloway, also dressed in the classic suit ensemble, and it is clear he served as a mentor to the brothers. He confirms the dire situation of the orphanage and also adds that he will be out on the streets if the orphanage closes. The brothers struggle to know how they can help, and Curtis refers them to a church service at Triple Rock with Reverend Cleophas, played by the infamous James Brown. During the church service, Jake sees the light and realizes the solution to earning the money needed for the orphanage is to get the band back together. From there, they set off on their adventure, and whenever they run into an obstacle, they simply inform that they are on a mission from God. Shaka Khan is in the choir, too. I feel like this is a church I definitely want to attend. The music in this movie is so incredibly good and features multiple blues legends, including the queen, Aretha Franklin. She was at the height of her powers, which, let's be honest, pretty much started the minute she started singing. I imagine that the casting of this movie pretty much proceeded the same way Jake and Elwood went about getting the band back together. In my mind, Belushi and Aykroyd called James Brown and said that Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles were in, and so on. I think this music is interesting and that the songs aren't original, but they managed to work all these amazing blues songs into the soundtrack in a way that seems totally organic. 
I mentioned in our episode, Movie Musicals Part 1, that this movie clearly borrowed some of its DNA from Stormy Weather, and I stand by that assessment, and not just because Cab Calloway belts the heck out of Minnie the Moocher. I find the Blues Brothers as a musical act so interesting. Belushi and Aykroyd originated the duo on Saturday Night Live, but the movie does not make light of the music at all. They are clearly connoisseurs of the blues and got all the heavy hitters to participate. This is no SNL skit for them. As you mentioned, the line Elwood says over and over is, we're on a mission from God. It's very clear to me that, at least as far as Jake and Elwood are concerned, God is a big fan of the blues. Before we move on to our next selection, I want to share one of my favorite exchanges in the movie, which I proudly displayed on a three-by-four-foot poster, along with a picture of Jake and Elwood sitting on the bluesmobile for about 15 years before it fell apart. Jake and Elwood are haggard, about to set off to try and make the deadline at the tax assessor's office, when Elwood says, There's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark out and we're wearing sunglasses. Then Jake responds, hit it. And they are off to Chicago. Damn, I love this movie. (laughs) Don't we both? A chorus line, previously a Broadway stage show, was released in 1985. I didn't remember, or maybe I never knew, that Richard Attenborough directed it. I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw that in the credits. Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse's only daughter, Christine, also ironically stars as a nervous and unsure dancer, which I'm fairly sure she was not. This movie tries very minimally to address what I referred to in our episode, Movie Musicals Part 1, as the breaking into song dilemma. At the beginning of the film, The characters break into song for no reason, but later they sing and dance as part of an audition to be in a chorus. Michael Douglas plays the choreographer and casting director who tells the hopefuls that this isn't going to be a typical audition. He proceeds to ask them about their parents, their past, and how and why they became performers. This is really just a setup for them to sing and dance. It's clear this used to be a stage show, and having seen it, I think it worked much better as a show than it does as a film. Again, sometimes it's just awkward for people to burst into song in the middle of the film. And that was the case for several of these scenes, at least to me. I did not love this movie. While I do agree that it worked better on the stage, I did not feel that the translation to film was the only issue. The music, for instance, is just not good, and that was far more apparent in the film. I'm going to second that emotion. I also felt like some performers were clearly better dancers and singers than they were actors. There was some very awkward monologuing, but monologuing is frequently very awkward, regardless of the movie, unless we're talking about Glengarry Glen Ross. Generally speaking, I appreciated the dancing much more than I did the musical numbers. Allison Reed, who played Michael Douglas's old flame Cassie, was a standout and an incredible dancer. That said, the song One 
is an all-time classic, and I love it so much. The end really hit me in the feels, too. We both danced as young people, and while I never auditioned, I could relate to the hopefulness or rejection the dancers felt when Michael Douglas selected the final performers. I do agree that the one exception to the underwhelming music is the song One. As you said, this is a classic, and once you know it, you can't get it out of your head. We were both torturing each other with it over the holiday. We would just look at each other and say, one. And then we both had to impulsively finish the first line. Fun times. Our next movie is South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, released in 1999. Needless to say, we will have to be very careful talking about this one, given the nature of the movie. For those of you who may not be familiar, it is offensive in language and topics, though I think it does a good job of balancing being offensive and still funny. It helps that they make fun of themselves just as much as anyone else. The movie, at its core, is a satire against censorship. It follows Cartman, Kyle, Stan, and Kenny as they are corrupted by an R-rated movie, their parents' overreaction to their new, quote, bad vocabulary, and the ensuing catastrophe that follows, including an all-out war with Canada. It is up to Cartman, Kyle, and Stan to rescue Terrence and Philip, the stars of the offensive movie in question, who are Canadian, and put order back to America and Canada to prevent the total destruction of each country. Meanwhile, after Kenny dies, because of course he does, he spends the rest of the movie in hell trying to prevent a prophecy of destruction with Satan and Saddam Hussein. (laughs) We are not joking when we say this movie is filthy. And I mean filthy in the best possible way. But if blue humor is not your bag, you should probably steer clear of this one. That said, part of the reason I think it's so successful is that one, it's as clever as anything, and two, the musical numbers are legitimately fantastic. They take the tropes of traditional musicals and mine them for comedic effect. For example, La Resistance, a number that combines four separate songs, is a direct homage to Les Miserables but with humor. It is a wild ride of ridiculous adventure. The musical numbers are hilarious, as is the whole movie. There are instant classics like Blame Canada, La Resistance, and our personal favorite, What Would Brian Boitano Do? We saw this in the theater, and as soon as this song started, we freaked out. We grew up obsessed with figure skating, and in turn, Brian Boitano, because he is so freaking awesome. I remember looking around the theater to see if anyone else was responding the way we did, and I am convinced we may have been the only two people in the theater who knew who Brian Botano was. It was an excellent moment for us, and this movie will always be a standout for me because of this song alone, though there are so many others to love as well. I love the Brian Botano number so, so much. You really can't overstate our mutual adoration for throwback figure skating. We were 100% this movie's target demographic. We'd be remiss if we didn't note that while Trey Parker and Matt Stone wrote the lyrics along with Pam Brady, the music was written by Mark Shaman, who's won an Emmy, 
a Grammy, and a Tony, and has been nominated for seven Oscars. Give that man an Oscar already so he can have the EGOT. His musical talents provided the film with its traditional musical sound, which, as I noted earlier, is what elevates this movie far above being simply a dirty cartoon. Blame Canada was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song, and Robin Williams performed the lead part at the ceremony. It was magnificent. I think an article in the New York Times by Stephen Holden discusses the complex subtext of this movie very well. Quote, Not to become ponderous, after all, it's only a movie, but the South Park phenomenon canonly zeroes in on some essential contradictions of American popular culture. In its cheerfully smutty way, it wants to clear the air of pompous, hypocritical rhetoric about protecting children from basic, if unpleasant, realities. Beneath the hilarity, the movie is a scathing social parable in which desperate, paranoid grown-ups who long for an impossibly sanitized environment go collectively crazy to the point that they're willing to bring on World War III. And what are they so afraid of? Just some dumb, off-color humor about bodily functions. It continues. When all is said and done, South Park has a very simple, self-justifying moral. As much as the movie touches on the socialization process and a conservative society's fears and prejudices about the human body and sex, it is really about mass entertainment, censorship, and freedom of speech. Its argument is distilled in a single short speech pointing out that movies allow almost unlimited violence while remaining petrified of anything reeking of smut. The mere existence of South Park, which received an R rating after a struggle to avoid NC-17, suggests that it is winning its argument. Hedwig and the Angry Inch, released in 2001, stars John Cameron Mitchell, with music and lyrics by Stephen Trask. Like many of our films, it started as a stage musical. Mitchell stars as Hedwig Robinson, a genderqueer rock singer who follows their former love, Tommy Gnosis, and his much more successful tour around the country. The angry inch in question is the result of Hedwig's botched sex change operation, tragically forced on them by their mother and by their lover in a misguided attempt to get Hedwig out of East Berlin. The film solves the breaking into song dilemma by having most of the songs presented as an integrated part of Hedwig's musical act, plus one that takes place in Hedwig's imagination. The songs tell the story of Hedwig's life and are frequently combined with flashbacks or animation. And what songs they are. The music is fierce rock and roll, and Mitchell is nothing short of mesmerizing. He's in almost every scene of the film, and it's impossible to take your eyes off of him. I'd seen a version of the stage production, but I'd never seen the film, and I loved it. The music is amazing, as are the performances. The overarching message of the movie is that you will never find happiness if you are seeking it in others. You will only find it within yourself. This is illustrated with Hedwig's fascination of Plato's split-apart theory, which explains that long ago we all used to be two halves as one being, with four legs, two heads, and one soul. 
The gods were so envious of our happiness that they split us apart and cast our halves around the world, leading us to search for our other half or soulmate. When telling us this story, Hedwig is seen with a tattoo of a face in two halves. They ponder, It is clear that I must find my other half. But is it he or she? What does this person look like? Identical to me or somehow complementary? Does my other half have what I don't? Did he get the looks, the luck, the love? Were we really separated forcibly or did he just run away with the good stuff? Or did I? Will this person embarrass me? What about sex? Is this how we put ourselves back together again? Or can two people actually become one again? This concept symbolizes Hedwig's search for identity in the film. They are obviously in pain and lost, which makes Hedwig very cruel at times, especially to those closest to them. In the end, they do find the contentment which they have sought in others, in themselves, and we see Hedwig naked in the world, just as themselves, with their tattoo now one complete face. Perhaps that is what Plato meant all along, that we are fractured within ourselves and must search to put ourselves back together and be comfortable just as we are. That's a beautiful summary of the film Central Thesis. It was so much more moving and profound than I expected, and I think you captured that element perfectly. Next, we have Moulin Rouge, and damn, do we love this movie. It is written by Boz Lerman and Craig Pierce and directed by Boz Lerman. Lerman has a very specific style to his movies that I love. Moulin Rouge is what I would describe as dramatic theatrical fantasy. It is a feast for the eyes, from the set design to the costumes. Everything is visually intoxicating. That is an absolutely perfect description. I've loved Boz Lorman ever since I saw his film Strictly Ballroom and was blown away by how modern and urgent he made the familiar story of Romeo and Juliet seem in his adaptation. The 1900 Parisian setting of Moulin Rouge is perfect for his aesthetic. My all-time favorite movie critic, Roger Ebert, insightfully said that Lerman, quote, constructs Moulin Rouge with the melodrama of a 19th century opera, the technicolor brashness of a 1950s Hollywood musical, and the quick-cutting frenzy of a music video. Nothing is really period about the movie. It's like a costume review taking place right now, with hit songs from the 1970s and 1980s. The whole movie is on the same manic pitch as O'Connor's Make Em Laugh number in Singing in the Rain. Everything is screwed to a breakneck pitch, as if the characters have died and their lives are flashing before our eyes. The film follows the story of Christian, played by Ewan McGregor, a poor writer, and Satine, played by Nicole Kidman, a courtesan and star performer at the nightclub Moulin Rouge. In the very opening scene, Christian is starting to write his story about love. He says, The greatest thing you will ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. He also notes that the woman he loves is dead. We know this going into the movie right from the beginning. And what follows is a beautiful story where love is worth it no matter what may come. 
I remember that you and mom didn't want to watch the film because you knew that Satine died. When I said the movie tells you that at the very beginning, and that you should watch it anyway, you were both skeptical but ended up loving it. I'm so glad because I want to share my love of this movie with the world. It's definitely in my top five favorite movies of all time. I recognize that it isn't perfect, and in some places, it's a wild, shambolic mess, but it brims with creativity and heart. I also think by letting you know about the end at the beginning, the film doesn't try to manipulate you, but it allows you to watch the bittersweet, beautiful story unfold. One of the many brilliant things about this film is the clever use of contemporary songs reinvented in its musical numbers, including Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, Roxanne, and The Sound of Music. This is one of the ways in which the movie seems truly visionary to me. I love the mashup of Voulez-vous coucher avec moi and Smells Like Teen Spirit at the beginning. In researching this episode, I found out that Courtney Love auditioned for the role of Satine and cleared the use of Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is both the coolest and the strangest thing ever. The spectacular, spectacular number, so exciting, is funny and clever as well. But I agree with you. Roxanne is a standout. Reimagined as a tragic tango, while Satine debates whether or not to stay with the Duke to save the production or follow her heart back to Christian, it's truly heartbreaking. I've never listened to that song the same way. The cast is all appropriately spectacular, too. Of course, she's great at the emotional scenes, but I appreciate how funny Nicole Kidman is in portions of the film as well. The scenes when she mistakes Christian for the Duke are hilarious, and Ewan McGregor as the petrified Christian wondering why she's coming on very strongly is perfect, too. And I admit to a huge personal bias toward Elton John, so when they sang your song, I was instantly hooked. This movie benefits massively from viewing on the big screen. I first showed it to Paul on video, and he liked it fine. But when several of us went for a Valentine's Day friends outing at the movies, he appreciated it so much more. I feel like this movie is a love it or hate it enterprise. The -the over-the-top artistry and pastiche of movie-making styles either charms you to the core or completely turns you off. I'm clearly in the former camp. As am I. Chicago is the 2002 Oscar-winning film adaptation of the stage musical directed by Rob Marshall. It stars Renee Zellweger as accused jazz killer Roxy Hart, Catherine Zeta-Jones as her fellow inmate Velma Kelly, Richard Gere as the attorney Billy Flynn, and the goddess otherwise known as Queen Latifah as Mama Morton, the prison warden. This movie is perfection. The performances are amazing. The sets are gorgeous, and the costumes are glorious. I think the film solves the breaking into song dilemma in a very clever way. The musical numbers all take place in Roxy's imagination. She wants to be a star and imagines all the scenes as over-the-top song and dance numbers. 
The music, like the music in Cabaret, is by Kander and Ebb, and the songs are probably my all-time favorite of any musical ever. They're the kinds of songs I listen to, even when I'm not watching the movie. My favorite numbers are probably All That Jazz and Cell Block Tango, but there isn't one I want to skip, ever. And I've seen this movie many times. I couldn't agree more. Every song is amazing, and you just want to join in on all of them. This is one of the few musicals where I have listened to the soundtrack multiple times. Often we have found that there are some standout songs in musicals, but others that aren't that great. Hello, Cabaret and a Chorus Line. While there are some standout songs in Chicago, like When You're Good to Mama, I Can't Do It Alone, and All That Jazz, to name a few, none of them are bad. That is very impressive, in my opinion. This paired with the on-screen execution of the musical numbers, it is no wonder it won Best Picture. There is absolutely nothing I would change about it. True story. I took our Nana to see this movie when it came out, and she was singing and dancing when she left the theater. It was so cute, and the movie clearly just has that effect on people. We hope you enjoyed our second installment of Movie Musicals. Please join us next Thursday for foodie movies, including Chef, Big Night, and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, in case you want to watch before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. Mm-hmm.